1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Well, there is sin, rather, that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. Is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Lord, as we meditate and think about your word and uh, ask your Holy Spirit to interpret it to us and apply it, we pray now that your uh, blessing will be upon us this morning, and not just uh, in this time together, which we thank you for, and fellowship, thank you for one another, but Lord, in the application of this, as we look to you to send the power of God in revival. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, just a couple of comments about that passage, uh, which not the bit I'm looking at, but uh, uh, mentioning there, that uh, there's a sin that leads to death. Presumably, that's akin or is the sin that Jesus calls unpardonable. He says all sins can be forgiven, except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is deliberately, deliberately, not casually or in ignorance, deliberately attributing to evil that which is clearly the work of God. That's a perversity which, uh, when a person's in it, really, there is no way that... Uh, the pardoning grace of God can come. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, beware of that. But also remember that many young Christians, particularly young people who become Christians who read the Bible for the first time, worry whether they've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you can be quite certain the old answer is true. If you've worried about it, you haven't. <laughs> because it's a hardened heart that wouldn't, certainly wouldn't worry about whether you've done it or not. Um, other sins we can pray about. Um, also, um, everyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning or doesn't sin. Again, that needs to be put in the context of the whole Bible and the context indeed of this letter, because earlier John says, if we deny that we're sinners, then we deceive ourselves. So um, I think the ESV was wise in talking about keeping on sinning. What it means is um, 
deliberately disobeying God, the continuum, not the, the lapses and the falls that we all suffer or do commit. Um, because that's a denial of uh, what's in us. I was sharing the other day something I remember hearing when I was at university. Um, it was David Shepherd speaking, who of course was the captain of England many years ago in cricket, and then became Bishop of Liverpool. And he, he was commenting on what Paul says, uh, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? There were those who perverted the gospel in Paul's day, as there are many today. And the idea is, well, you get grace when you sin. So if you get sin more, you'll get more grace. Now he said, you can't think like that. And David Shepherd illustrated it rather well, I thought. Um, hence, I'm sharing it with you this morning. Um, he said, I've often wronged my wife and she's forgiven me. I know that if or when I wrong her again, she will forgive me. But I wouldn't do it for that reason. That would be a denial of love. And it's the same with God. Yes, the grace of God does cover every sin, not only past, not even present, not only present, but future. But that's not, we can't deny our relationship with the Lord and abuse his grace. So I just mentioned those two things uh, because they do raise questions from this passage. What I want to look at, though, is this verse 19. And this is with revival in mind. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, there's no mitigation of that. We are of God, believers. And those who do not believe are under the power of the evil one. Um, it would be worth just keeping your thumb there and going back to chapter 20 of John's Gospel. Remember, John wrote his Gospel for evangelism. And that's, how does he start? He starts with the eternity of God and then creation. Very important. That's how you've got to preach the Gospel. A lot of people try and do it without uh, creation and of course that's unbiblical in the end of john's gospel chapter 20 we read this jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these things are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life and explicitly chose out stories and words of Jesus and theology, teaching, which would help a person to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's evangelistic. Now, the epistles are not evangelistic. The three epistles of John. They're written to believers. To give you and us and me more understanding of the faith and therefore of the challenge of evangelism. So if you look at the, the um, words uh, I opened with as I read the passage, that's 1 John 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
So in John chapter 20, he's writing to the reader who may not be a believer yet. Uh, he says, take seriously all the stuff I put in there. The woman at the well, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I'm the true vine. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you believe those things, you'll have, you'll receive eternal life. But for those who have received eternal life, then we need to know stuff. We need to know things. So he's writing to believers like ourselves here in order to give us understanding of other people and of the task we have. Remember, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, it's very important to remember that we know more about people than they know about themselves. That's not arrogant. It's just a fact. And uh, here is the clear statement here. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Being of God is explained in uh, verse before, a couple of verses before. No, the verse before. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not sin. So being of God means being born of God, born again, having the spirit of God in you. Um, so I'll, I'll come back to that. But it's I want to major this morning on this other statement. The whole world is under the power of the evil one. That is every person who is not born of God. Everyone who's not born again. Up and down your street. In other lands, in this land, in your family, your neighbor. Now, I have to say, it sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it? That they are uh, under, they lie, literally. The word kemai, from which we get cemetery, is there. They lie under the power, that's under, under the power of the evil one. Not lie, telling lies, but prone, you know. Cemetery, it's a lying place, that is a place where you lay people's down, bodies down. Um, that's from this word. And this is the fact. The world, those who are not believers, lie under the power of the evil one. Now, remember, he, he is writing to believers to give them understanding of what the task is. Once you get hold of that, it kind of revolutionizes how you view evangelism. Because without it, you might think, well, that's kind of more snappy, you can make it more cool, you can make it kind of attractive and all that stuff. Uh, it's more effective. A lot of people think like that. <laughs> but it's very vain. It certainly isn't the case. Because if you're lying under the power of the evil one, that's not going to make any difference. The only thing that makes a difference is the Spirit of God making you alive. You were dead in transgressions and sins in which you once walked, Paul tells the Ephesians. But God made you alive. By grace you've been saved. So that's very important. And as you, you've got people you're praying for in your family and your neighbours, and we're praying for this town and for revival. People by nature are dead in transgressions and sins. Under the power of the evil one. Now, most people under the power of the evil one are frightfully nice people. You might think, you know, John is thinking they've all got horns and a, a pitchfork and a tail. No. They're nice people. Satan loves nice people. Did you know that? There's no greater barrier to coming to faith in Jesus Christ 
than to be a nice person. I'm not saying it's good to be bad or evil, but alas, most people who go through their life without receiving Jesus Christ as their savior and who will stand before the Lord on the judgment day will be nice people, nice neighbors, kind, considerate, and so on. So how can we understand this? Well, there is a very good way of understanding it, I think, through some pictures I'm going to show you, which uh, Mike will put up in a minute. Ask you a question. Who are the most intellectual, well-educated, nicest, most philosophical, most politically uh, motivated, and indeed most artistic people in history? All the nice things. The ancient Greeks, and particularly the Athenians. Athens, even in the days of our Lord, was the intellectual capital of the world. Second came Alexandria in the north of Egypt, and third, Tarsus, indeed, in Cilicia, where Paul came from. So he was very familiar with not only um, Jewish teaching, but also Greek teaching, which has stood him in good stead. Um, we just celebrated the Olympic Games. Where do they come from? From Greece. All competitive sport comes from Greece. The way we think, uh, the values we have, um, our rejection of a creator in our culture, they all come from the ancient Greeks. And I want to kind of illustrate this with some pictures. Now, you may or may not know, but if you will know after I've told you, that Athens... The patron deity of Athens was Athena, the goddess Athena, uh, who uh, in the Greek mythology was Parthenos, which means a virgin. And her great temple was called the Parthenon. You can still go and see it. Actually, it's one of the things I haven't done. I still want to go and see it. Alas, it's in ruins, not because it's ancient, but because it was blown up in the 1687 because they had the... Uh, I think it was the Turks or somebody had munitions in it and they caught fire, which was not a sensible thing to do. Um, but it still stands. It's the amazing sort of carvings that were damaged. But mercifully, if that's the right word, uh, drawings were made of these carvings before it was blown up. So we do have some record. And essentially, the Parthenon on the Acropolis, which means the, the top hill, because she was the, the top deity in Athens, uh, uh, shows Greek thinking. And uh, I wanted to show you one or two things, and I'll talk, talk you through these things, and then we'll come uh, back. To Mike, could you put that, begin that PowerPoint? Just show the first picture. This is the other view of Eden, the Greek view of Eden. Now, this is a reconstructed model of the goddess Athena. I think it's in America, actually. They've reconstructed the Parthenon somewhere. Um, she is the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Now, her name uh, is linked with death. Athanatos means deathless. 
She's the immortal Athena. Um, and she's the goddess of wisdom. And this statue, I forget how high it is, uh, but it towers. If you enter the Parthenon when it was there, it was towering above you as you came in. You had no doubt this goddess was the chief uh, in this town, the city of, of Athens, the goddess of wisdom, Athena. Now, I want you to see on the um, her left or your right, can you see that arrow that's pointing downwards? Can you see what's there? It's the snake. And the snake is upright. Remember God, when Adam and Eve fell, put a curse on the saint, on the serpent rather, and um, cursed him and put him on the ground. Well, Athena derives her wisdom from the serpent, but not on the ground, but upright. This is the other view. In other words, Satan became the enlightener for mankind. In the Bible, we have it very clearly stated that if you listen to Satan, you will die. And Eve and then Adam listened to Satan. And what did he promise? You should be as gods, knowing good and evil. You shall not surely die. Now, Athena is the deathless one. She called herself, or at least they called her that. Athanatos became Athena. And she has the serpent always by her side. But upright. See that? That's where her wisdom comes from. And you see the other arrow? That's Nike, the goddess of victory. She represents the victory of fallen man's wisdom over the wisdom of God. That's what she represents. And therefore, she's a very modern miss or ms. And she represents our culture, which, believe it or not, listens to the upright serpent and uh, has Nike, the victory, uh, in all that we do because we believe that we are right. Okay, so she is the goddess. Now, when Paul went to Athens, he would have gone in and seen her. He would have seen the upright serpent and the Nike uh, god there, uh, goddess rather, on her hand. Also, the other side of the serpent, if you can see, is her shield. You can't see it there. That's covered in snakes. Okay, because that's where she got her wisdom from. Right, next slide, please, Michael. Now, if you want to make sure that she really loved this snake, can you see this one? There's a statue. The snake is her pet. That's the snake in the garden who tempted Eve. And Athena really is the reborn rebirth of Eve after the flood in the mind of the Greeks. They had a very clear view of where their, their faith came from. It came from the serpent. And very, very interesting, what they did was cut out creation. Remember when Paul says in Romans 1 uh, that they knew God but didn't honor him as God as creator, worshipped uh, the creature. Well, he had, certainly had the, the Greeks in mind um, and the culture around him. Uh, that's history, really. Um, it actually goes back to Nimrod uh, in the Bible, who, with his father Cush, 
created paganism. And it's very likely that he did so under the influence of the wife of Ham, Merma. And we don't know that she was the wife of Ham, but there's one woman of the line of Cain, in fact, the only woman mentioned apart from Eve in the first chapters of Genesis is Nehemiah. And there was a goddess, Namu, who really is behind every goddess uh, in the world, including Athena. Um, and it's the most likely explanation, really, is that Nehemiah of the line of Cain brought unbelief into her family. And her son, Cush, along with Nimrod, his son, created the uh, paganism. And in Greek, uh, in Greek culture, they sort of reconstructed the story and they called him Heracles. So here we see Athena, where she gets her wisdom from, the upright serpent. Okay? So the most cultured community in the history of the world got its wisdom from there. Next slide, please. Now, on the right, um, there's a, a, um, a thing that was, I think, found in the um, harbour Ath near Athens. And it says Heraclides, at the end, if you can see those last four words, it's to the god. And who is the god? It's, it's Zeus. So Heraclides de dedicates this to Zeus, the god. He's the top god, along with Hera. But he wasn't creator. Zeus and Hera are the oldest gods uh, in, the, in the sort of view of the Greeks, and they were, but they weren't created. They came out of chaos themselves. They cut out, creation is cut out of, of, of it. But so this serpent is Zeus. Okay? But normally Zeus appears in a nice way with a, with a thunderbolt. That thunderbolt actually isn't really to destroy people. It's actually a sign of enlightenment that the serpent gave him. In his hand, you see Greek statues. So, and can you see also the beard on the serpent? There's a number of uh, Greek uh, statues and models and uh, carvings that have the beard. And do you remember John in Revelation calls him the ancient serpent? That's to show wisdom, that uh, beard on the ser a serpent. So that's actually Zeus. Uh, that's Zeus. That is the top god in Greek. And you can see in the other picture on the left, uh, people worshipping the serpent. Again, upright. Can you see that? Not on his belly. This is the other side of Eden. This is worshipping the wisdom of the world. And when Paul talks about the wisdom of the world, this is what he's talking about. Satanic wisdom. But it doesn't manifest itself in this kind of way. How does Paul say Satan appears? As an angel of light. And his ministers, ministers of righteousness. So this, this is the reality of the unbelief that was then and now in people. But the, the, the actual appearance of it is much nicer than looking at a serpent. It's actually uh, looking at all the things that were, were pertained to ancient Greek culture and all the things that uh, are of our culture in our education uh, and uh, uh, media and so on, that uh, actually are those areas that are mainly godless. Okay, next slide. Now, here, the bottom guy is Zeus. 
he'd be holding his uh, thunderbolt. I'll tell you his picture. You can see it on this picture. Um, that's his enlightenment. But that is Zeus. That is the top uh, god in Greece. Zeus. And can you see what's happening? Athena is being born out of his head. Fully dressed. Sort of micro. Ready to grow. Complete with her shield. That is the goddess of wisdom. She came out of the head of the serpent. And she was the chief uh, goddess of Athens. So the incredible fact is, is that the most civilized nation and community and politically uh, uh, educated and philosophically um, um, inclined and, uh, and also brilliant in, in uh, painting, but also, of course, completely in uh, statues and sculpture and, of course, literature, vast, incredible literature of the Greeks, Plato, uh, the poets, um, the playwrights, Aristophanes, uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, all that. They all came like this, out of the head of the serpent. All right? <laughs> so that's what was true in ancient Athens. No wonder Paul says, your city is full of idols. What does he preach there? He preached the creator God. And the last picture there, Michael, thank you. They, they created... Uh, the vase painters had a sort of code. Michael Bowie Johnson calls it the Parthenon Code. So they knew exactly what they were painting on the vases. And let me explain this one. On the left is Heracles. Um, that is Nimrod in, uh, in history. Um, and that large guy on the ground, the giant, is, represents the sons of Noah. Those who believe in Yahweh, the true God. And what he's doing is disposing of them. Killing faith in the true God. Okay? As creator and redeemer. And exalting instead human wisdom. And who's that, with the, who's that with the arrow? Guess who it is? That's Nike again. The victory. This is the victory over faith in the true God is human wisdom. There it is. Thank you, Michael. Turn it off now. Yeah. So <laughs> that is what has always been the case since uh, the fall. Human wisdom, you should be as gods, uh, elevated over and over against the true wisdom of God. Well, because you see, in Greek religion, there was no place for creation and there was certainly no place for redemption. And the only reason we have it in our culture mainly is because of the gospel. But there were elements of it, actually, in early British thinking because of the Druids, who had both a doctrine of creation from nothing and a doctrine of redemption. I'm not saying they were perfect, but... Um, the um, the bard in uh, the days of King Arthur, Taliesin, says that uh, although in the Middle East the name of Jesus was new, uh, he was writing in the sixth century, you know, some centuries before. With us, we've always known him in this in Britain, 
And the reason is uh, the Druids believed in the Trinity, one of whom was person with whom was Yesu. Um, uncreated God, Trinity. One was Yesu, who was the God of the future, who's going to be the savior. So Taliesin could say that in this country, we'd always known that. So there is some element of truth in that. Uh, one of the reasons that the Druids actually accepted Christianity was that it was a fulfillment for many of them anyway, of, um, of what was part of their teaching. But as far as uh, the Greeks were concerned, they were totally paganized and they cut creation out and they followed absolutely the road of Nimrod. So they were nice people, educated people, unbelievably educated people, managing politics, everything, beautiful architecture, amazing poetry, amazing philosophy, but under the power of the evil one. Now, I don't really need to make the connection, do I? That is our culture. It is no accident that we have the Olympic Games. <laughs> That's where the gods lived, <laughs> Zeus and Hera. And Heracles himself was elevated because of his labors, 12 labors, um, where he went back to, don't forget, don't forget, to the garden, which he said was in the West, or the Greeks did, Hesperides, and there was the apples there and the snake up the tree. And he had to go and get those. And also, another aspect of that was Atlas. You know, Atlas holding up the world? He's not really holding up the world. They used to be, remember Charles Atlas, some of you remember. He's actually pushing the heavens away. Get rid of Yahweh. Get rid of the true God. We're going to do it our way. And that's what it's about. And that's where the world is. The same now as it was then. The only reason you who are looking at me who believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, is because the Holy Spirit has shown you your need of him, that you are his created being, that he is holy, that you have sinned against him, and Jesus Christ has paid the price of your sin. You've been born of God, in other words. But, of course, the wonderful thing is this. Jesus gives us the gospel, and there it is in John's gospel, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You have eternal life. And Peter, John's writing here to assure you that you have eternal life, but also to remind you of the world in which you live. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to reject the world. So don't pray to the Father he take you out of the world at all. Some Christians think that's the way to... to uh, to flourish and survive. No, it's not. But that you would be kept from the evil one. And it says here that, that those born of God, the evil one can't touch them. He can't touch you. You who have been washed in the blood of Jesus. You who believe in Christ as your savior. You who have uh, received eternal life. And notice he's called the true God and eternal life. This, that's very rare, that phrase, the true God. You find it, of course, in what Jesus is words in John's gospel. This is eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So as we look and we're looking for God to move, this world be under the power of the evil one. It's not a sort of, oh dear, well, there's nothing we can do about it. 
let's uh, just go up a mountain and wait for the Lord to return, or let's have a holy huddle in our nicely new decorated building. No, 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 no. No, 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 not at all. Yes, Satan is under, the world is under the power of the evil one, but Christ can make people alive. The Holy Spirit can bring people out of that as he's brought you and me. As Paul says about the Israelites, God kind of, resent, kind of rejects them totally because look at me, he said. Here am I, I was an opposer of Christ, the chief of sinners, and God showed me grace and mercy. In the same way, that's true of your neighbor, who may be a person who's militantly atheist or something. Probably just a nice person. God can bring that person out. Are you praying for them? Are you on your prayer list? Those up and down your street? Your family? Are you praying that God would do that? I tell you, he can do that. The wisdom of the Greeks passed away. Well, no, it doesn't didn't pass away. That's not true. And what I'm saying to you is it's still with us. But the gospel is stronger. Remember. With the cross. Paul said the word of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jew with their religion and foolishness to the Greek with their intellect. But to those who are called, that is the elect, those who've been set apart from before the foundation of the world, whom God pulls by his grace, it is the power and the wisdom of God. And God has many, many more who have not yet come. And they will come. But you and I are called to be the instruments and to pray. I have a prayer meeting for revival in my house every Friday night at 7. Think about coming and joining us. Praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Christians, first of all, and then upon the world. Because God can raise up. You know, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. But when the light shines, when God says, let there be light, then there's nothing Satan can do. He can't stop a person being saved. He can't hold on to them. When Jesus, God chooses to save, he will save. He does all things according to the counsel of his will, but he calls us to be part of that. Okay, so don't forget that. You know, years ago, um, the National Secular Society put out a handout on Good Friday. Remember it? I learned it off by heart. And the handout said this. The message of Good Friday is that of capital punishment, willfully assisted by the victim as the means of the salvation of the world. To modern man, this is both distasteful and absurd. Well, Paul, funnily enough, said exactly the same thing. It's a stumbling block and foolishness. Same things, same order, 2,000 years before. Except, he adds, but to those who are called, it is the power and the wisdom of God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that, yes, Though the world is under the power of the evil one, you are able to make the dead alive. And that means those in our families, those in our neighborhood, those in this town, those across the world. Our culture, the United States, which is defected from you like we have, Lord, we're looking for a great awakening. 
a great revival. In Jesus' name. Amen.